Well, hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Harbor Teaching Podcast. We hope that the messages you will hear are both uplifting and challenging. And now, welcome to the Harbor. Awesome. Okay, hey, so we're going to dive into uh, God's Word for a little bit. Um, so turn with me, if you will, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5 is where we're going to be as we continue in our series, Everyone, Everywhere. And as we dive in, I want to ask one question to you. Have you ever uh, gone to a church and spent a little bit of time there, like I'd say like three to six months, and uh, as you got there and as you kind of stepped in and spent some time there, it hits you, this is a perfect church. Like there's nothing wrong with it. Everything is exactly as I desire. Yeah, me, me neither actually. Um, th- there is no perfect church. And I remember actually the first time that I kind of realized this, and I may have shared this story before, but I was in um, this church actually, and I'd been working here for a couple years, and I had one of my best friends in the world who um, we worked together, and uh, we just like were serving together and praying together and, and leaning into everything possible together as just followers of Jesus, and it was a really special time. But, but then he had someone from the church um, kind of take an action that ended up really hurting him a lot. And as like one of his best friends, like I felt that wound so much and, and I felt that deep pain. And there was a season of time in my life where I felt like I was reeling from it and processing it and trying to literally figure out like how do I come up for air in the midst of this? And I wish I could say that I was only ever on the receiving end of church hurt, but actually I have unfortunately, even as a pastor, at times done things that have hurt people. Um, About a few months ago in February, um, I I was up in North Carolina and I was with my my family and we all went to church together. And as we were in church, um, I, I turn around and lo and behold, there's someone from the harbor there who used to go to the harbor. And it was like this crazy moment. I was like, you know how like when you see someone but they're not in the place you think they are? Like it's like when you see your teacher at Target, you're like, you don't, you live somewhere outside the classroom or something like that, you know what I mean? It's like so weird. So I finally kind of had that connection point and we started talking and and just catching up and I was asking him how he was doing and then he kind of was like, hey man, I I gotta tell you something about the harbor. And uh, I was, I'll be honest with you, just in my own pride, I was gearing up for a compliment. Like, like I was like, here we go. He's gonna tell me how my life was, his life was changed by my preaching. He's gonna talk about how everything shifted one night as I was delivering a message. And I was like, I can't wait for this moment. And then he's like, you, you really hurt me one time. And it was like this awkward moment where I was having to like reorient everything. And, and he was like, yeah, like when we were talking one night, like I was pouring out my heart and it just didn't seem like, you were very interested and you were kind of like look, looking somewhere else or you kind of like gave me just sort of like a, a trite answer. And it hit me in that moment like that it wasn't like I had a defense. It wasn't like, well, here's the, pr-. it was like, no, like I messed up and I genuinely hurt this person. And, and it made me realize even more just the weight of, of, of being a pastor and being a leader. And, and, and I, I still screw up many times uh, this week 
I had to apologize to someone when they were like, hey, what, something that you said uh, wasn't very cool. And the reason I'm kind of bringing us into this scene and making us think about kind of these like maybe not the most pleasant memories when it comes to church is because, you know, we've been talking about the birth of the church. That's what Acts is about. And as I shared last week, the beginning of Acts, it's like butterflies and rainbows and gummy bears. Everything is going perfect. And there's people are getting saved left and right. And, and pe- like the God's spirit is being poured out. There's this radical Jesus community that's happening. And it's like, this is incredible. But, but then we started to get a little turbulence last week. Peter and John arrested going into the council. But what we're gonna get this week is full-blown major problems within the church. And we're actually gonna see three major problems that happen within the church this week. And we're gonna explore kind of what God's plan is for responding to those problems. And I just think it's interesting because each of us like we all have our expectations about what it means to be part of church. Maybe you have come to a church for the first time or you're just trying to understand what it is and so you have an expectation. We all have our experiences within church and I, th- I think it's gonna be fascinating because you're gonna see that from the very beginning, like the church had problems. And so we're gonna read Acts chapter five, verse one, and it says this, it says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. Everybody say Sapphira. It's just a nice name to say. Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why, you have not lied to men, or why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So let me set up this story for you. As we've talked about, The church started on the day of Pentecost. From all over the known world, Jews came to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And when the Spirit moved, this revival takes place and thousands upon thousands of people get saved. And during this time, all of the people who came from outside of Jerusalem, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, like, They did not have credit cards. They did not have Airbnb or Hotwire. And so basically at the time, most every single person was was poor. Like there wasn't a lot of wealthy people around who could just camp up at a hotel. And so when you came to Jerusalem, like they were only expecting to stay for a few days. But because this church was born, they were kind of staying at the epicenter of the church. But now you have these thousands and thousands of believers who are in the middle of, of the, this, this city and they don't have anywhere to stay. They don't have any money. They got nothing. And so what's amazing is that the 
The, the, the new believers started becoming radically generous. They started selling their houses, selling their property in order to provide for this new community. No one had any need. That's what Luke writes. And so in the moment of that, in the kind of the midst of this momentum of generosity, these two men and women, Ananias and Sapphira, this couple, they decide we're gonna sell our property too. But instead of giving all of it, they only gave some of it. Now, now, let me just explain something because it isn't a sin to only give some of your resources to God. And nobody in here is required to sell everything unless God calls you to sell everything. And God has called some people to sell everything. But, but what Peter says is, while it was yours, you could do what you want. Even after you sold it, you had all the money, you could do what you want with the money. That's what it says in the text. So Peter is saying, like, you don't have to give it to us, but he says, you have conspired in your hearts to deceive God. You've made a decision to yourself. We're gonna act like we have everything and we're giving everything. We're gonna act like we're far more generous than we are and we're gonna deceive. And so for you and I, as we look at generosity, what we have to realize is that we are called to be a generous people. God loves a cheerful giver, but we should decide amongst ourselves and God what we give and then give honestly and generously from that place. And let me just encourage you and thank you because what's amazing and what I've watched over the past few weeks and months is that our Harbor community has actually been a radically generous community. I wrote down a couple of things that our community has done since the start of COVID-19. At the very beginning, we raised over $500 for a family who didn't have a job who was in need to buy groceries. We were, our team was calling the elderly and, and checking in on them. Uh, one, some, a couple from the harbor anonymously donated money to one of our youth families that was in need. We, we have two of, two of our harbor leaders who are adopting kids from foster care right now. We have somebody who donated several hundred dollars to someone who lost their job. And so what I've seen here is that our community, the people that are sitting in these pews and these rows are radically generous. And I wanna encourage you, let's keep on being generous. But Ananias and Sapphira, it wasn't a generosity problem, it was a deception problem. And this is what happens next. Acts chapter five, verse five when Ananias heard these words, this rebuke from Peter, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came on all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now this is intense, right? Can we agree? Like this is kind of a heavy moment. Whenever I read Acts, this is the moment when I start getting uncomfortable. Because like literally, this man sinned, his sin was exposed, and in the moment, in the assembly, like this, he dies on the spot. That's heavy. And we're gonna talk about it in a second, but I wanna continue to just keep reading. This is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible for us to wrap our minds around. So in verse seven, it says, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. She said, this is how much we sold it for. 
So once again, we see there's a deception. There's an agreement among this couple to deceive. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her besides her husband. That's like a tough day for one of the young men. It's like, not only do you have to bury him, but you're like, whew, thank goodness we're done with that. And then you walk in, boom, she's down. You're like, come on, I gotta like do it again. So, so this is the result, though, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So what can we take away from this? Th- this man and his wife decide to deceive the community, and, and their punishment is not, hey, confess, uh, ask God for forgiveness. Their punishment is immediate death, and that's heavy. And can you and I agree, that's like not a normal thing. Like we have all had moments where we have sinned and we all hear still, so that means we didn't get struck down like that. And it's an abnormality. This is like not normal in the Bible. So, so why did this happen? Even some scholars ask the question and they're like under trying to understand like Peter denied Jesus and he didn't get smote. Is smote a word? Is that the correct verbiage? Judas betrayed Jesus, and he didn't die immediately. So why is it that this happened? And and some of the people and the men of God who have tried to wrap their heads around this share a couple of ideas. One of them is that because this was in the early days of the church, it's possible that God removed this sin to protect the young community. When, When my son was born, He was so weak as all babies are that he couldn't even support his own neck. And so for the first couple of months of his life, whenever anyone held him, they had to support the neck because he hadn't developed the muscles yet and the strength yet to actually be able to hold up his own head. And so possibly in much the same way, this could have been an act where God was trying to support his young church and make sure that nothing got in to stunt the growth before it got too far. David Guzik says this was a crucial juncture for the early church. And such impurity, sin, scandal, and satanic infiltration could have corrupted the entire church at its root. And Pastor Mark, he says that God was making a statement to this early church. I want all believers to be honest and pure and real. And so that's possible that that's the reason. Certainly this event also proved the severity of sin. And that God does not take sin lightly. Richard Longnecker says, we must be thankful that the judgment upon deceit within the church is not now so swift and drastic. But this incident stands as an indelible warning regarding the heinousness in God's sight of deception in spiritual and personal matters. So this shone a light to the church and even to us today that says, man, this is what God thinks of sin. And God hates sin because he loves us. And he knows that sin separates us from God. And he knows that sin 
creates division and creates pain within the community. And so perhaps just like a spoiler alert at the end of a movie that reveals what is at the end of the line, maybe this moment was a moment in the church where God says, spoiler alert, this is actually what I think about sin. Now we have to remember that as the church and as followers of Jesus, God is gracious to us. He extends grace to us. And when Jesus comes into our lives, we are forgiven. We are justified. When God looks at us, he sees us as holy and righteousness and pure. And when we sin as believers, we have the grace to confess our sins and to receive God's cleanliness. But we must remember that that grace does not call us into uh, just a pursuit of sin because who cares, but that grace calls us to pursue Jesus with our whole hearts. And so the first problem we're gonna learn about tonight, and like I said, we're gonna learn about three problems, is that there is sin within the church. And our response to that problem is this, that we as followers of Jesus pursue holiness. We pursue holiness by becoming like Jesus in our thoughts and our desires and our words and our actions. That's what holiness is, is seeking to become like Jesus. So how do we become like Jesus? Well, one way, if you want to learn more, shameless plug here is check out and become a part of North Star. I truly believe that that will be something that will help you. But let's talk for a minute about, let's say you and I, we know that we have a sin in our lives. What do we do? How do we get rid of that sin? Well, the first step for us is that we have to take a moment and we have to confess it to Jesus. Confessing simply means that I agree with what God says about my sin. That I don't say it's something that it's not. And really, when Jesus comes into our lives, he is the light of the world. And so he brings light. And what does light do? Light exposes, light purifies, light cleanses, light brings comfort. And so a lot of times I think what we can do is even though Jesus knows everything, that we can kind of pretend like we're hiding stuff from the light of the world. And what that does is really all that does for us when we pretend to hide things is it makes us double-minded because we're, we're in two camps and we're kind of in two stages. And so we, we can get this anxiety or this discouragement or this stress in our lives because we're trying to hide things from the spotlight that God shines into us. And so it would be much better, much more joyful, much more peaceful. So much freedom will come when to God we confess our sins and we say, God, I'm so sorry. I agree with you. Give me the strength to follow you. And what's amazing is God is a loving father. And so he invites us in and he gives us that strength. He doesn't alienate or kick us out or, or, or push us away. And so I wanna encourage you that if you feel that tonight is a night and God is offering you a moment of grace right now to confess, and if we confess, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. But also we must realize that God even wants us as a community to lovingly confront each other about sin. Now, 
this one, if we can be honest, like this one makes everybody feel uncomfortable, right? Like nobody's like, sweet, I cannot wait to confront somebody about sin. Or maybe like three people do, and it's like, you, you may need to step off the brakes or step on the brakes a little bit. Like you might be too excited about it. And, and so, but, but for most of us in here, we're like, man, I, I, I'm actually nervous when the thought of maybe speaking to one of my friends who I see going down a bad path. And I wanna encourage you that as the harbor, like we're not a sin-sniffing community. We're not out here trying to like pick on every single sin. But if you have a relationship with someone, a friendship with someone who's a follower of Jesus, and you see them going down a path that is unhelpful, then it is actually unloving to allow someone to continue to walk down an unhelpful path and a dangerous path. It's loving when you see a blind man about to walk off a cliff to be like, sir, just to let you know you should stop. And in that same way for us, we have to reframe this of like if sin truly is separating us and deadly and damaging, then what we should do is lovingly confront each other when we see that happen. If you feel like and if God's bringing you maybe even someone that you need to maybe respond in this way too. I just wanna give you two verses up here on the screen. You can write these down. This is a great framework for how we confront someone. The first, Matthew 7, three through five, speaks that before we get the speck out of someone else's eye, we get the log out of our own. We approach things with a posture of humility, not a posture of pride and excitement to confront. And then Matthew 18, 15 through 20 gives the step-by-step directions for what we do and how we have the conversations with people. But, but the first problem is that, man, when there is sin within the church and there will be, this is how we address it. We address it by pursuing holiness. Now, let's look at the second problem. And if you will flip over with me to Acts chapter six for the second problem, here it is. In those days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So remember, we have this group who is all selling their possessions so that no one has need. But what we discover is Luke is saying, actually, there's one group that does have need. In the Jewish community, there were two different kinds of people. There were Hebrews and there were Hellenists. Now, the Hebrews, they were the traditional Orthodox Jews. They were the ones who stuck word by word, line by line to the Torah and to the code that had been set up. And they were traditionalists, okay? They were conservative. They didn't trust outsiders. There was this very much focus on making sure that this community was pure. Now, the Hellenists, they mostly lived all around the known world, and they had allowed Greek culture to kind of influence them. And so basically, it's two different stances. It's a hyper-conservative and a hyper-liberal stance. David Guzik puts it like this. He says, to oversimplify, the Hebrews tended to regard Hellenists as unspiritual compromisers with Greek culture. And Hellenists regarded Hebrews as holier-than-thou traditionalists. And so when it came to the, uh, to, to, to the distribution of food, the Hebrews were in charge of it, and they decided we are not going to distribute it to the Hellenists. They said to that group, you can go to Hellenist. 
That's my dad joke of the night, okay? I get one a night now that I'm a dad. It's a fact. And, and so what happens is, sorry if that offended you. I, I've become a Hellenist. I've become too liberal or something like that. I don't know. But anyways, so, so there's actually this prejudice that has creeped into the church be, because they have uh, exposed one group against another. And so the, the problem is brought to the apostles. And here's what is said to the apostles, verse two. It says, the 12 summoned the full number of disciples. So thousands of people gathered, and here's what they said. They said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So, so what the disciples are saying is we have a clear call from God. As a pastor, I have a clear call from God. It says in Ephesians 4 that I am called to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so I am called to equip all of us, and our pastors are called to equip all of us so that each one of us can go out and be a light into the community. It was never designed for me as a pastor to be the all-star who's doing everything. And so he says, here's what you need to do. Choose men who are full of the spirit, who can actually serve and make sure that people are treated fairly. And I just wanna take a moment in this moment and just say that I'm so grateful for the men and women who are full of the spirit who serve here at the harbor. It takes a small army of people to actually serve our community. And we have people who are holding doors and on cameras, there's someone up behind that exit sign right there who's putting up slides right now. Actually, two people who are up there right now. There's people who lead us in worship. We have uh, North Star leaders and community group leaders and discipleship leaders. And so we have all of these men and women who have said, I wanna help serve our community. And I'm so grateful for that. And I love what the apostles said. They spoke and encouraged and said, we have to remember that we are called to teach. And he invited the whole community to contribute. And so this, this leads me to the second thing that I want us to look at. Problem number two in the church is that the church can't meet every need. And so also, because of that, we can even be prone to favoritism in the church. And our response to that must be that we are called to be contributors. And so we need, as the church, more contributors and less consumers and critics. We need all of us to adopt a heartbeat and a mindset to say, I'm not here just to consume. I'm not here just to critique. But what I want to do is I want to be here to contribute. And here's the reason why that is. Because when I think about what we have been called to do as the harbor, I think about the fact that there are thousands and thousands of young adults in our community who need to meet Jesus. And we want to tell them about it. We want to go out and invite them. We want to create a space for them to come in where they feel welcome and where they feel loved. And we want to not only do that, but we want to walk alongside of them and help them to meet everything that God has called them to do. 
And so what, what I'm asking us to dream about is what if we were a community of people that said, first and foremost, I'm not necessarily here just because I think this is like the coolest thing ever. I'm not necessarily here to pick out part the things I do like and the things I don't like. But what I'm here to do is say, I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of going out and inviting someone and, and saying, I want to invite you and bring you to this thing that has had a big impact on my life. I, I want to be a part of, of, of welcoming people in and letting them know that we've thought about them and prayed about them and, and yearned for them to be here. I, I want to do something that maybe no one will ever see my face or know my name or, or I'm not going to get a lot of glory for it, but at the same time, I'm willing to do it because I want to welcome people in and get the message forward. Maybe even saying, I maybe realize that right now, I don't know a lot, and so I wanna grow. I wanna join North Star so that I can grow in my faith so that when I grow, I can help somebody else grow. Let's be a community that's a community that says, I'm here to contribute. I'm here to, to pour out for what Jesus wants to do in our community. That's problem number two, is that in the church, we will always have more need than we have people to meet the need, and we respond to that by contributing. Number three, the problem is we're going we're gonna to dive into number three, and that's how we're going to wrap it up tonight. So, so one of the men that was chosen to serve tables, his name was Stephen. And we are told that Stephen was full of the spirit and full of wisdom, and Stephen didn't just serve tables. Stephen preached. And one day he was preaching, and, and his preaching was so passionate and so fiery that actually a bunch of people got offended. And sometimes when you preach about Jesus, people will get offended. And so they started putting false accusations against him. And they called him in front of the court, the same court we talked about last week that Peter and John were at, the same court that Jesus himself was tried at. They put him in front of these 70 men, and the 70 men said, is it true? And here's the two accusations. First off, they accused him of speaking against the temple, which was where they believed God dwelled. And then they also accused him of speaking against one of their founding fathers, Moses. And so in chapter seven, Stephen gives this brilliant, passionate sermon. It's like 50 verses. I'm not gonna read very much of it. But what he basically says is, remember that God has been moving through our forefathers from Abraham to sending him into the promised land, to sending them to Egypt, to delivering them out of Egypt, to delivering them into the promised land. And in all that time, God never dwelled in a temple. He had been moving apart from a temple the whole time. And so the temple, the place that, you think is the only place God can live, you, you gotta think that God is bigger than that. That's the first thing he says. And the second thing he says is, you may think that I'm speaking against our founding father, Moses, but Moses is actually a picture of who Jesus was. Just like Moses delivered the people from bondage, Jesus delivered the people from slavery. Just like Moses was the ruler and leader, Jesus is our ruler and leader. Just like Moses was rejected by his brothers and went away and then came back, Jesus rejected by his brothers going away and coming back. And so he says, Moses actually promised Jesus to you. And so in this moment, Peter wraps up his sermon in this really intense way. Now, th this summer, 
I read a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's like a classic bestseller. And in it, it really speaks about how to be kind and how to be loving and how to be encouraging. And basically what I'm telling you this to say is that Peter or Stephen did not read this book because this is how he wrapped up his sermon. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So he fires these shots and he says, look, you have known the truth, but you have continually rejected it. And listen to their response, verse 54 of Acts 7. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is significant for, for a key reason. It says in the scripture repeatedly that Jesus, when he ascended back to heaven, he is now seated at the right hand of God. This is the only time recorded in the New Testament that I'm aware of that Jesus is listed as standing. And the reason that we believe is because Jesus was standing in a, a, actually a posture of, of welcome and a posture of honor at Stephen who had stood up for him in the face of persecution. And Jesus himself was welcoming Stephen into heaven. That's a beautiful picture. And they were furious at that because they didn't believe Jesus was in heaven. And they cried out with a loud voice. And they stopped their ears and rushed at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And I love this. This is a powerful moment because these leaders have tried everything they possibly could to stamp out Christianity. They tried to kill Jesus, and that didn't work. He rose again. They tried to threaten Peter and John. That didn't work. And now they're so furious that they actually do murder Stephen. Stephen becomes the first of many, many who would die for his faith. And right there at his execution, here we have this man named Saul. Saul who would one day become the Apostle Paul. And he's the one who are, is holding the cloaks of the men who are throwing rocks. Last thing that we read is that as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep, he died. And we read in verse one of chapter eight that Saul approved of his execution and that there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so what we see is that this persecution arose, but that persecution didn't stop the church, but the persecution advanced the church. 
And I need us to understand, you know, Jesus at the beginning of Acts, he prophesied and he spoke to the people and he said, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what's happening here is that so far we've only been in Jerusalem for all four weeks. And what we're seeing now is that through persecution, the church has expanded to Judea and to Samaria, completing the purpose that, that our Lord and Savior gave it. And so the last thing that I want us to write as we wrap up tonight is this, that the problem, number three, is persecution, but our response is this, that we keep on preaching Jesus. And as I wrap up tonight, I wanna encourage you and I wanna take just a moment and share with you if you don't know about Jesus. And, and we've been talking this entire time, this entire series, we've talked about the fact that Jesus is the great desire of our souls. And, and the reason that they killed Stephen was literally because he was preaching about this man, Jesus, who came to earth to die on the cross for the sins of you and I. Because God loved us so much that not only did he send uh, Jesus to us, but he allowed Jesus to die for us so that you and I, we could experience life with God. So that we could experience eternal life and that we could have life here on this earth. That Jesus would be the gateway to all future joy on this earth. And so if you don't know about Jesus, if you don't know, if you don't have a relationship with God, the way that you do that is you ask Jesus to come into your life to forgive you of your sins. And then when he forgives you of your sins, God cleanses you and he gives you his spirit to follow him. And so I just wanna invite you as the band is coming back up, I wanna invite you to, to pray and to receive Jesus. So would you guys bow your heads in prayer? If there's anybody here who does want that gift of Jesus, who desires to follow him and maybe you have walked away and you're coming back or maybe even for the first time ever you wanna say, I wanna become a Christian, Brian. I just wanna ask you right now, if that's you, if you would just raise your hand. Nobody is looking around, but I wanna give you an opportunity to actually invite Jesus into your life and into your heart. If there's anybody here who would say, that's me, I'll give you one moment to reflect and to think about it. For the rest of us, I just wanna invite us to ask God over the next couple of minutes here to just speak to our hearts as we enter into a time of worship. I wanna invite God to just continue to speak to us, continue to ask him to move in our hearts based on the word. God, we're grateful for what you're doing in our community. We ask that you would continue to allow us to pursue after you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks so much for spending time with us. If you'd like to know more about The Harbor, please follow us on Instagram at wearetheharbor. Also, if you need prayer, feel free to send us a DM. Otherwise, tune in next time.